The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. I'm Lara Prendergast. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the new issue with the writers behind them. This week, we look at whether Joe Biden's administration is mimicking China's policies on everything from lockdown to spending. We also take a look at the fake building facades going up all around London. And finally, we wonder whether Boris Johnson's childcare costs will wake the Prime Minister up to the realities faced by working parents across the country. So, first up this week, are we really now in a state of Cold War with China? And if so, why is the US now copying China? In his cover story this week, the historian Neil Ferguson looks at these issues, and he joins me now alongside Dr. Leslie Vinjamuri from Chatham House in London. Neil, in your cover story this week, you put forth the case that we're in a second Cold War with China. What seem to be the main characteristics of this Cold War? Well, like Cold War One, Cold War Two is ideological, and we sometimes underestimate how much more ideologically communist China has become under Xi Jinping. It's uh, it's also conventionally geopolitical because China wants to expand its reach over the South China Sea and uh, beyond. It's economic. There's an economic race on here, and China's doing a lot better than the Soviet Union in that race. And then there's a sort of tech piece to it. There's a tech race to try to be first to quantum computing or artificial intelligence, uh, or for that matter, to come up with world-beating vaccines against COVID. All of the features of Cold War I, I think, are already here today, and that's why I've been speaking for a couple of years now about Cold War II. And one of the main points you make in your piece is that America is no longer just competing with China, but actively copying it. What are the key ways that America is copying China now? It's kind of strange. Joe Biden's proposing to to come up with a a Western version of the Belt and Road Initiative or One Belt, One Road. Uh, Everybody's nagging the Fed and the Bank of England to do a central bank digital currency. And I think maybe most strikingly, the West seemed to take the view last year that somehow China had got it right with COVID, with the lockdowns that were imposed all over China after around about January the 23rd. And so we we kind of copied them. Uh, and this is something that the other Neil Ferguson, not me, but the epidemiologist at Imperial College admitted when he said, essentially, the Chinese had shown that it was possible to lock a society down. Uh, I think that was a grave error, because we should have been copying the Republic of China, Taiwan, which was able to contend with and contain COVID without lockdowns by using testing, tracing and isolating the infected. Uh, but for whatever reason, we decided we'd, we'd copy Beijing. And I could go on. And increasingly, one has the sense that uh, the Biden administration's uh, embraced the old ideals of economic planning. I, I'm losing track of the number of plans currently going through Congress, for example. Leslie, do you agree that America is now imitating China? 
No, I don't. And I also, I think the Cold War analogy is sort of, you know, interesting, um, but I think it, it, it obstructs more than, than it actually explains. I mean, on the imitation, it, at, the, at the current moment, it's China that might want to think about imitating the United States. If you just look at the extraordinary su- success of the, of the vaccine dissemination and rollout. But, you know, to this broader question of whether or not proposals to invest in infrastructure both at home and and to cooperate uh, transatlantically in some sort of package that can be offered across the developing world. I mean, this does, this isn't copying. This is, you know, investing in what we all know has been quite broken in the United States, which are roads, bridges, but also extending to focusing on digital infrastructure. These are things that just, you know, a modern functioning and frankly, still superpower uh, simply need. I, I don't think there's any aspiration in the United States to do this in the way that China's done it. I think the United States still conceives of it as itself as working with a very vibrant, innovative, creative private sector. And even in spending, I think a lot of that spending will be channeled through private sector actors that are given a tremendous amount of latitude on a scale that you could never imagine uh, in China. However, it's clearly the case that the United States needs and wants to be as competitive as it as it possibly can, and that China and competition with China is uh, not only real, but it's also used, being used as a justification to try and, and push these proposals uh, through Congress. Something that's going to be very uh, difficult to do. But you know, one word on the Cold War idea. I mean, look, we all know that. We're in a radically different international environment in which uh, the world is globally integrated um, and including with China in a way that simply you know, didn't exist uh, during, during the Cold War. So while there is tremendous competition and there is certainly a values divide, the world is just not divided into blocks in the way that it was then. Now, one of the interesting points in your piece is where you talk about the conservative thinkers who are starting to even like the idea of a Chinese empire. What what do you make of that? Well, I perhaps one shouldn't quote deleted uh, tweets, but I thought it was very interesting. Saurabh Amari uh, said that he didn't really regret the passing of this decadent United States. Maybe maybe a Confucian world order would be preferable to a woke world order. These moments of cultural despair are common in the history of conservative intellectuals. Uh, you sort of stop believing in your own side because uh, it's become infected with woke ideology. I, I think the key here is, and I don't think Leslie and I wholly disagree, that competition with China is, is extremely important and necessary. And we were not competing uh, in the period when we thought that if we were just economically integrated enough with the Chinese, they'd magically become liberal. Now I think there's a much greater awareness that you have to maintain a lead in artificial intelligence or quantum computing. So I think the Cold War psychology of competing to win is one of the healthier developments of the last several years, because I think if we'd simply carried on letting technological edge pass to China, we'd have come to regret that. But competing is different from copying. I think it's a mistake to start rationalizing what we're doing by saying, well, this is the the way the Chinese do it, so we should do it ourselves. Central bank digital currency is not a good idea uh, for a free society. The point of China's doing that is to maximize its surveillance over all citizens' transactions. Uh, So I think we have to think very carefully about what it is that we're going to, to compete with the Chinese on. I don't think we should be competing uh, to produce uh, central bank digital currencies, to give just one example. Leslie, do you agree with that? 
I, I think that the, the broader point as to whether the U.S. should be copying China, I mean, absolutely not, uh, you know, which isn't to say that there isn't a lot of learning to be done. And, you know, on the question of, say, investing, targeted investment in certain industries that need investment, like semiconductors, for example, but that the broader notion that you can target, that you can invest in a, in a concerted way, something that you we might loosely refer to as industrial policy, you know, some of that's learning. Uh, copying, I think, goes a bit far. But I, I think, you know, fundamentally, the values, the structure of the U.S. economy, uh, its way of doing competition uh, will be radically different, not not marginally different, but radically different than how China does things. Uh, but, I, you know, I fully agree, right, that competition is critical. And, you know, if, if playing the China card helps uh, in a productive way to get the United States and many of its partners working together in a more concerted way to think about things like, you know, how far should Chinese investment go in, in critical industries what should the limits be on certain kinds of economic exchange? I mean, those are all very, very important things. Technology cooperation, pushing back on surveillance technologies. Copying isn't either the aspiration or the reality of, of what we're seeing either in the U.S. or in Europe. Uh, but it is, of course, what we see in China, because as in as in Cold War One, the other side does a lot of copying because it's trying to catch up. And uh, the Soviets began copying the atomic bomb and went from there constantly trying to, to copy Western technology. It didn't go the other way. We weren't trying to work out how the Soviets designed their computers, thankfully, because that would have led us <laughs> to disaster. Uh, so, so I think this is the key. China has, even more than the Soviets, built its economy on copying, on systematic intellectual property theft, and uh, and allowing uh, the penetration of big tech companies by Chinese nationals was a very bad idea. One of the many bad ideas of that period when we thought that if we just uh, globalized the world enough, magically everybody would become a liberal democracy. That that thankfully has been junked in favor of uh, what what seems to me still very very familiar, very similar to to Cold War One. Sure, it's a more globalized world. The fundamental nature of the, the rivalry between the US and China looks distinctly familiar. And, and I think one lesson of, of Cold War One is don't become your enemy. That's the fatal, fatal mistake that you can make. And it was a mistake that luckily George Orwell did a good job of warning us against uh, when he wrote 1984. Thank you, Leslie and Neil. Next, it recently occurred to our writer Laura Freeman that there seemed to be a lot of fake brick facades going up around London these days. Thin, cheap veneers that conceal all manner of shoddy, unappealing structures seem to be quite common nowadays. So, why is this trend flourishing? And do facades really matter? Laura joins me now, together with Samuel Hughes, a senior fellow at the Policy Exchange Think Tank and an architectural authority. Laura, in your piece in the magazine this week, you rail against the proliferation of what you call fake news facades in London. What sorts of facades have you been noticing that particularly annoy you? It's this phenomenon of um, supposedly brick buildings that turn out to be only one brick thick. Um, and you get these sort of brick watchers on Twitter who are posting photos of where a little bit of the facade has just fallen down. And, you know, presumably if it happens when there's a you know passerby going uh, along the pavement, it's actually a risk. Um, but it leaves these kind of great gummy gaps in the teeth of buildings. Um, and there's just something sort of fundamentally dishonest, I think, about putting up a building that you're selling to people as brick, um, which is really just sort of a, a brick veneer. But you say in your piece that you're all for a brick city, but you just don't like this fake brick. Is that is that correct? Yeah, 
I think so. I mean, I've got sort of real reservations about you know, glass and steel. I think what works in Singapore doesn't always work on the South Bank. And actually, you know, going in an Uber through South London yesterday, you know, tower block after tower block, steel, glass, super, super shiny. And it doesn't seem to in any way, you know, be neighbourly, you know, where you get these low brick terraces that are Victorian. And then these you know, complete aliens that just deposited in the urban landscape. And at least brick, you know, used in a modern and interesting way, kind of feels like it's a part of the city. But I just don't like this sort of, you know, this illusion of brick. Samuel, is this fake brick something that you've also noticed in London? Yes, I mean, I love the article. I I, I think I agree with the with the spirit of the uh, of uh, uh, Laura's case. I uh, my diagnosis is maybe slightly different. So I'd say, like, I agree. There's, I mean, there's clearly has been a lot of shoddy brick veneered buildings going up, and I've also seen on Twitter these quite amusing things of like what London's going to look like in twenty years when these brick veneers start falling off, and they can apparently be a safety hazard as well when a little you know a shard of brick falls from uh, from a hundred feet. I wouldn't say the problem is with using a facing material per se. So pretty much all the buildings that we love, going back you know, back to the Roman Empire, if they look like stone, they're probably actually brick or, or rubble mortar and they've just got a thin cladding of stone on the outside. And lots of buildings that look as though they're brick, you know, from the Edwardian period, in fact have steel frames on the inside. And they're, in my view, clearly splendid buildings. So I, I'm quite sympathetic to the idea of a facing material. But I, I you know, definitely agree that it's often been done very incompetently and we'll pay the price for that. Do you agree, Laura, that sham facades are nothing new? Uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in a stucco terrace at the moment and I, I admit in the piece that our stucco is in an appalling condition after very wet winter. It is, I mean, literally coming off in chunks every time someone slams the front door, another kind of wadge falls off. Um, so, no, it is nothing new. I think the other thing I wanted to get at in the piece is an awful lot of these buildings are actually residential buildings. They're one and two bedroom flats. They're actually aimed at first time flat buyers in London and other cities. And I think what makes me really, really angry is it does seem to me that young people are being sold flats that either have cladding that is, you know, a fire safety hazard and that makes their flat unsellable or they're being sold flats in buildings um, that are so badly made um, that parts of them are dropping off and it does seem to me a really really feeble offer to homeowners in this country and we keep saying we've got to build more houses I absolutely agree that we've also got to build houses that people actually have some desire to live in. Simon is it the case that brick is a particularly expensive building material? Um, no, I think if you build structurally in brick, so if you have load-bearing brick walls, that does raise build costs. It takes quite a lot longer to build, uh, especially if you know tall mid-rise buildings. Using it as a facing material is not very expensive at all. And in fact, one of the things I've puzzled over is how often we see really cheap-looking, ugly brick veneers when it actually price differential is very small between using using a nasty extruded brick and using a nice stock brick if it's just a if it's just a facing brick. Laura just finally would you rather see a fake brick facade or a glass and steel facade if you had the choice <laughs> knowing that it was a fake brick facade. Rock and a hard place <laughs> and a hard place. I mean actually I, I, I don't mind a mix I mean I think actually a city is often successful when you have a kind of you know a, a sort of motley crew of buildings I actually maybe what I would ultimately say is I'd rather just everything slightly more low rise and slightly less enormous and maybe more more buildings sold to, to kind of more flats sold to people who are young and trying to get on the housing ladder rather than buyers from overseas who are kind of pricing everybody out. But that's a slightly different issue. Thank you, Laura and Samuel.
And finally, as talk continues to swirl around the Prime Minister's alleged costs for his new nanny, Isabel Oakeshott writes in the magazine about why many parents are forced out of the workplace because they simply can't afford to pay for the cost of childcare. Isabel joins me now, together with the Labour MP Stella Creasy, who has been campaigning for extended maternity rights for sitting MPs, as well as being the first politician to engage a locum MP during her first pregnancy. Isabel, in The Spectator this week, you reveal that you spent half a million pounds on childcare over the years. Have you been employing an army of Norland nannies? If only. I mean, even I couldn't sort of couldn't believe the sum. I did know that it was going to be a horribly large number, but I was quite shocked when I did my little back of the envelope calculation. And the truth is, it's probably a higher figure than that. And whilst the the total number is extraordinary actually it really only boils down to you know the annual salary of a nanny for very very many years um and i've had nanny longer than many parents will have because i'm a single mum i work full time and i work at some pretty odd times so i've found myself also paying for overnight care sometimes and weekends and so on But the point of that piece isn't about me. I'm lucky enough to have work that pays well enough that I've been able to afford it. I'm not going to pretend it hasn't been painful. The point of the article really is about how unaffordable childcare is for so many working parents. And, you know, many, many parents find that it just isn't worth it. You know, they're not paid enough to be able to afford the childcare. It doesn't make sense for them if they're not earning enough of a margin for that emotional wrench of leaving their children in the hands of somebody else. It seems else. as though Britain is particularly bad on this front. Why, why is it so ruinous in Britain to, to foot the bill for childcare? Well, in short, because the government has, and successive governments have failed to take the really bold policy initiatives that are required to to properly address this. Um, Labour government brought in some some very helpful initiatives with childcare vouchers way back when that I I made use of. Now we have a coalition brought in a certain number, 15 hours of uh, free childcare during term time, uh, which is, you know, to some extent helpful for all three-year-olds, but really to make a dent in this, uh, or or rather to do more than make a little dent in it, you've got to think much bigger and bolder. Look at Japan, where they've just brought in universal free childcare for three to five-year-olds, and that's not means-tested at all. That's the kind of level of it. And of course, that has enormous cost implications for the public purse in the short term. But there are really powerful arguments, not just that this is the right thing to do to uh, broaden workplace opportunities for women, and unfortunately it is bluntly women who are disproportionately affected, but also so that we're not losing those skills of women that have qualified. They've often spent years in training or acquiring brilliant work experience only to drop out. And it's particularly um, affecting in the NHS, actually. You know, you look at at GPs in particular, they're well paid, um, but many of them decide that actually the cost of childcare means that there isn't a huge margin for them and they condense their hours and and work very part time. Stella, you have a young daughter and and another baby on the way. Is, Is the cost of childcare is something that concerns you? It's cost and supply. I mean, actually in this, all the market interventions are in the wrong place. And I think that's one of the reasons why perhaps governments haven't really understood that childcare should be seen as an infrastructure issue. Because as Isabel says, and I would agree with everything she's, she's just put out, it pays for itself and then some. 
But frankly, the women who are going to be kicked out of the workforce and lose their jobs and then end up earning less, because obviously we know it affects the gender pay gap, it's going to happen long before your child is three. So the idea that we then bring in childcare subsidy at the age of three makes no sense to me at all. We also know there's a lot of unspent money. So one of the things that's been really frustrating over the last year is we know there are an awful lot of women who've not been able to go back to work because there hasn't been the childcare. We know that the childcare sector itself is on its knees. So the supply of places is falling. We know a lot of nurseries are closing, particularly in poorer communities like mine. And we know that it means our tax take will be down as a result. So 70% of women in a TUC survey couldn't go back to work during the pandemic because they couldn't get childcare. And I think there was just this presumption that, you know, if you close the schools, the mums would pick up the slack, the mums would do the homeschooling, but somehow be able to do all their work in the evenings. It's not a realistic proposition. So we're losing women out of the workforce because of the lack of childcare in the pandemic. And then we're losing women from the workforce and the impact that has on their pay, on our economy and our productivity as a country, because we seem to think for the first three years, you'll be fine managing. It's only when they get to three or four that we should be intervening as a state. All of the interventions are in the wrong place to make this market work for our society. And one of the points that Isabel makes is that we could make childcare tax deductible. Do you think there's much sort of pressure for that One to happen. One of the things that, that's been really frustrating me is we've seen nothing from the government about trying to support the childcare sector because there's going to be a big crisis when eventually all the furloughing stops. There's an awful lot of, and we know that mothers are disproportionately likely to be furloughed. So there's also going to be an awful lot of women who will not be able to go back to work because the childcare places won't be there. And we've been pushing the government and it's cross-party support to say, look, you need to invest in childcare. You need to not fund these places on the numbers of children in them at the moment, but in the numbers of children who need places, there is actually an underspend in our childcare budget. So already you get a tax break for having childcare. Lots of people don't realise that you get 20% of your tax care paid, but your childcare paid by the state. A lot of people don't claim it. There's £1.6 billion underspent. If we put that into nurseries now, we could hopefully save some of the places that we'll need when the furloughing ends so that actually people can get back to work, can make the choices that they and their families need, and frankly, the Treasury will get the tax take back and then some. Isabel, what do you think it tells us if, if even the Prime Minister is struggling with his childcare bills? I mean, lots of people will look at him and think, how on earth can that be the case? But I mean, clearly it does seem to be. Well, it tells us that he's been a very detached parent all these years because this is at least Boris's sixth child and it oughtn't to come as any surprise to him how difficult it is to manage these things. And MPs are lucky in a way because they've got the House of Commons nursery. I've got no uh, personal experience of it, but it's brilliantly convenient, relatively affordable with the emphasis on relatively and it caters to some later night sittings. One of the big difficulties for parents, even if they can find nursery provision, is just the lack of flexibility. You know, the reality is if you've got, particularly if you've got more than one child, it just doesn't stack up. It doesn't stack up financially because there's no buy one, get one free or buy one, get one half <laughs> price. You know, it's multiplied. I tried nurseries. I've got three children. I did try when I had two and it just it just didn't stack up at all because you haven't got the flexibility at the beginning of the day and the flexibility at the end of the day. So I hope, uh, but I have, I'm afraid, no expectation that this might just concentrate the Prime Minister's mind a bit. And Stella is absolutely right about these very early years. They're the most important years, actually, in terms of child development, naught to three, naught uh, to two in particular, and actually probably the hardest years for new mums. And I think what happens if you, if you can't uh, get the help you need during that time 
apart from anything else, you're not just losing your skills in terms of returning to the workplace, but losing your confidence. And that's really important. It's very tough as a, as a working mum to try to juggle it all. But if you're also having to battle to get back into the workplace, it's very easy, I think, to become defeated by it. You know, the obstacles are just so immense. Christella, just finally, do you think it's the issue of childcare in this country is almost creating a kind of two-tier divide within for women of people who can afford to go back and people who can't and and it's not and it's not particularly sort of supportive of women in general uh, yeah I, I mean I, one of the things that really frustrates me is people talk about flexible working being the answer but flexible needs to be funded if you are in a low-paid job it doesn't matter if you can work flexibly you're still going to earn less and that in, becomes a disincentive to be able to have that flexibility for your family Look, as I say, we need to take this out of the DfE. We need to get this into the Treasury and see this as an infrastructure issue in the same way that we see investing in roads and transport, because it pays for itself. You know, this isn't about telling every family how they need to live their lives. This is about helping families make good choices and also, frankly, bringing the dads in. And I I hope I agree with Isabel, the frustration of somebody who's got six children suddenly realising that childcare might be an issue and it needs to be paid for, because we need to pay the people who help our children grow properly you know, it's an issue for the dads. What I think is great is there are dads in Parliament who are interested in this, but we now need to see the colour of some money and investments in it. The only thing I know is that we are one of the least productive countries in the G7, and it's not by accident. And part of that is because we don't support women to stay in the workplace and to work in ways that work for them and their families. And that is a missed opportunity for our economy and our society. Brilliant. Isabella and Stella, thank you very much for joining. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you pick up this week's issue, you can read everything we've talked about, plus plenty more. We've got Laurie Graham writing about what to include in a memory box with the plague year, Isabel Hardman writing about dandelions, and David Crane, who reviews a new book about Napoleon's gardening. Thanks for listening, and do join us again next week. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.